All right, looking forward to this. We are going to be John chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 15, if you guys have your Bibles or if you have them inside your phones. Either way, please turn to John chapter 3. We're working our way through verses 1 through 15. So part of what um, we're going to do kind of right off the bat here, um, this is a conversation that takes place between Nicodemus. He's a, he's a prominent Pharisee, the religious uh, leaders of Israel in the time of Jesus. He and Jesus have this conversation by nightfall. That's, that, that's basically what we're going to be working through here in, in John chapter 3. And in this conversation, Jesus, he references uh, a passage out of the Old Testament, out of Numbers, uh, in reference to a time of disobedience of God's people. He brings that imagery into this conversation. So in order for us to be prepared for that when we get there, I'm going to do a real quick flyover of Numbers 21, 4 through 9, and you'll get where it comes in whenever it comes in. Hopefully we'll be able to kind of maintain our rhythm whenever we hit it. We spend just a real quick little bit of time here. So I'm just going to, don't worry about turning there. You can if you want to. Uh, keep John 3 uh, in, in your place there in your Bible. We spend most of our time there. But I'm going to do a quick buzz over Numbers 21, 4 through, time, 4 through 9, not 4 through time. It has been quite a morning already this morning. I'll spare you the details. Um, this is a situation where Moses and the Israelites are in the wilderness. If you guys know the history, God's people were journeying to the promised land. The first generation was disobedient. Uh, they died off. They wandered in the wilderness long enough that most of them, uh, pretty much all of them eventually died off. And then they eventually made it into the promised land. This is the second generation heading that way, basically, under the leadership of Moses. So I'm just going to read through this a little bit, give you a real quick commentary so you understand where we're going with all this stuff. And then we will uh, move back on to John chapter 3. This is 21, Numbers 21, 4, verse 4. We're going to work through 4, uh, 4 through 9. It says, from Mount Hor, they set up by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And so here they are setting about on their journey. They've been on it not for very long. And they get, uh, they basically, the background is Edom had refused to let them pass through. And so they had to basically turn around and walk back the same way that they came because they couldn't go through this certain country on their journey. They didn't get permission. And uh, as you can guess, when you walk everywhere you go, that's kind of discouraging, right? You got to turn around, you got to go, like you got you to turn around and walk this tremendous distance again. And so it kind of discouraged them. And it says, and the people became impatient on the way, verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now, Moses was God's ordained leader. So to speak against Moses was to speak against God. But they also took it a step further. There were many times in the past and the, the Israelites would speak against Moses and God still judged them for that. He still took offense of that. But they actually was bad enough that they actually spoke against God directly. And so this is what he did. Or this is what they said. And then how the Lord responded. They said to Moses, speaking against God and Moses, they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. By this worthless food, they're talking about the manna that was given them from heaven. They were tired of eating it. Well, then what happened whenever they spoke out? The Lord judged their sin of disobedience. And this is how he did it, in one of the most terrifying ways possible, I would argue, if you're familiar with the story. It says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And they were called fiery serpents. Scholars think that it's most likely that they were called fiery because of the fever that you would get because of the, the toxins and the poison, that you would just basically have this burning fever and it would, it would eventually kill you. Uh, now, Something comes to mind, okay, whenever I read this story, whenever I have read this story, 
When I was a little kid, when I think about snakes, I think about this often. I don't remember how old I was. I was barely old enough to remember this, but I had my aunt. Uh, we were somewhere. I don't, I, don't, I don't have enough memory to remember where, but I remember we were getting ready to walk into this really old like shack of a building. It was like a, 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 you know, some sort of a farmhouse. We, I grew up out in the country. We were somewhere where we, we were going to be going in this old barn. And I remember as a kid, it was already scary enough. I was like, I don't want to go in this place. It looks creepy, you know? And so she starts to walk in ahead of me and then she stops and she does this and she looks up and she turns around at me and she says, one time when I was walking into a building like this, I had a big black snake fall on my head, on my shoulders. And so I look every time. She said, now, Jacob, you make sure you look every time before you step in a building like this. You know what I just did the other day when I walked into my chicken coop? I was like, there ain't no snake falling on this dude's shoulders. Like, I'm not, <clears throat> not having it. Like, I don't, you know, I don't mind the snakes when I see them, when I know they're there. But when they surprise me, I don't like it. I don't like being in the water with them. I don't like stepping on one. And I sure don't like one falling on my shoulders. That would, you would see me scream like a 12-year-old girl. Like, it would happen. And, uh, you know, and so, yeah. So that's what comes to mind when I think of it. There's nothing more terrifying than having a, a plague of snakes and judgment of your sin come and bite you to the degree that you can't get away from them. Think about it. Every time you crawled into bed, you're trying to check and see if there's one of these snakes in there. Every time you walk into a house and lean your hand against the side of the wall, to use a different reference, uh, you're going to get bit by a snake. You walk by a tree or, or, or next to a bush, you get bit by this, by this snake that, that its venom kills you. Like, it's terrifying. Uh, it's terrifying to me. I can't imagine anything more terrifying than that. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Yes, you can bet that's where they landed, right? Didn't take long before, uh, you know, for them to have this to realize they didn't want it and they had done the wrong thing. And so they went to Moses and they said, Hey, we have sinned. They said, Pray to the Lord that he'll take the serpents away from us. So the people repented of their sin. They verbalized their repentance. Did God just take the serpents away? Did he say, Okay, he said, You're sorry? No. There was, there was something else that needed to be done. It says, so Moses prayed for the people, verse 8, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So that was God's response. It sounds kind of strange. That was his word to the people. Notice God didn't say to worship it. He said to look at it. That's what he said to do. It's a very simple command. I don't know that it can get more simple than that. He says, believe my word to you and look here. That's what he says. Do you think there were some that refused to do it because they thought it was foolish? Probably, right? And a whole nation of people, I'm willing to bet somebody that was on their deathbed when they were told, hey, you just got to look at this. They were like, what? I don't think I'm going to do that. But Moses, he obeyed. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. Notice he didn't take an actual dead snake. He made a representation of it. A serpent, a figure of evil and of sin, right? He made it out of bronze, which is a, a symbol of judgment in the Old Testament. That's what, that's what he made it out of. And after he did that, he set it on a pole. He set it up on a pole, and it says, And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. He would look at the bronze serpent and live. So he took this symbol of their sin and their judgment. He lifted it up high, and he said, Look at this and live. This is what you need to do. Simple act of faith, right? And that was their salvation. So no matter how horribly they were bitten, no matter how many times they were bitten, 
No matter how sick they were, how close to death they were, their opportunity for salvation was there. They simply needed this, this small act of obedience, this small act of faith. Why is this important? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 6-11, speaking specifically about this situation and other ones like it, he says, These things took place as examples to us that we might not desire evil as they did. That word examples is the Greek tupos, which basically means type. He said these things are anticipatory types or images for us to teach us, right? Paul tells us in verse 11, they're written for our instruction. That's why they were recorded down. This passage is like this in Numbers. And Jesus himself, as I said earlier, he used the, this history, this actual history of the Jewish people, in that same exact way in the conversation with Nicodemus recorded in John chapter 3. That's why I wanted to spend a brief time going over it before we hit our passage here. He uses a real-life example to present a type or an image of a real-life spiritual truth. So now whenever we get to it, you'll have a little bit of context. you have a little bit of background to go with it. So let's now turn back to John chapter 3, starting at verse 1, and we'll work our way through this passage. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. So let's paint the picture of this real quick. This conversation happened early in Jesus' ministry. We know from the passage leading up to this that many had professed to believe in Jesus because of the signs that he had done in Jerusalem. But we also knew that Jesus knew they weren't sincere in their belief. And so it said that he did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. Now, John, the author of this gospel, he presents Nicodemus, I would argue, in contrast with these people. He presents Nicodemus, I believe, as an earnest seeker of the truth. I don't think he was playing any tricks here. It originally said, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And the language there could also read, but. But there was a man named Nicodemus of the Pharisees, right? Presenting that contrast. Nicodemus, I would argue, is not a villain here. And that is not normal when we're talking about Pharisees, right? If you guys have spent any time in church at all, whenever a sermon is preached on Pharisees, those were the bad guys, right? They just, they just were. I know I hate to throw them all in a group together, but typically that was the case, right? Nicodemus, I would argue, is not presented as a bad guy. He's not presented as a villain. Now, we know from John 19.27 that John had a home in Jerusalem. Many scholars think this meeting could have likely occurred at John's home on the upper roof guest chamber of his house. The way it worked, if that was the place, and we don't know for sure, but the way it worked is Nicodemus would not even had to pass through the house to access it. You access them from an external staircase. You walked up on top of the house from an external staircase. It was a guest chamber up there. So he could respond there in the dark at night. He could walk up the stairs, meet with Jesus. It could all be done anonymously uh, as they had possibly agreed to do, right? As Jesus was expecting him, we believe, by the context. Picking it up the second half of verse 2. Nicodemus said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, this speaks to insincerity in coming to Jesus to speak with him. He uses the respectful term of rabbi when addressing Jesus. Now, take a moment here, as I said before, and th- saying I don't think he was presented as a villain. Does this sound like any other encounter with a Pharisee that Jesus ever had? So let's take a minute to develop a greater understanding of who Nicodemus was before we go on and the significance of this conversation between them, as John recorded it for us. Nicodemus is referred to by John in verse 2 as a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. 
The Sanhedrin, if you don't know, was a ruling body of 70 elders in Israel. Think, this is kind of their functionality. Think U.S. Senate and Supreme Court judge all wrapped up in one. That was kind of their role. And yes, they were under the authority of Rome, but they held a lot of practical and local daily authority over the lives of the people of Israel. Men like Nicodemus were very serious about their religion. They had a tremendous zeal to obey God's law. They were so zealous for it, this is where they got in trouble, that they made it into things it was not meant to be made into. Because of Nicodemus' supreme devotion to the law, he was seen as a morally upstanding, nearly above reproach man. If you gave Nicodemus a test, you could sit the answer key right next to him and leave the room because he wouldn't look at it. He took God's word so seriously that he would have had a considerable portion of the Old Testament memorized. If you have Bibles that you can actually touch, go down about two-thirds of the way from that entire thick collection of writings, he had a considerable portion of that memorized. His daily prayer habits would be hard for us to wrap our minds around. He is a man of influence and reason. He even ensured Jesus was being treated fairly in a conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees in John chapter 7. But he appears to not be overly prideful as most Pharisees seem to be. Here he addresses, addresses Jesus as rabbi, even though he has no formal education in the scriptures like Nicodemus does. He's not just a Pharisee, he's a ruler or leader of the Pharisees. Church, I would argue that Nicodemus represents some of the best of humanity that we could ever present to God. If we were going to present someone, just some normal guy that's got his stuff together, at least in his, the realm of his intentions and how hard he's working, I don't know that we could find a better example. You'd be better off with Nicodemus than you would be with me, right, on my own. If you were around... Nicodemus today, you would be impressed. You would probably want him to be your pastor. Yet he does not approach Jesus with arrogance as the Pharisees so often did in their encounters with him later in the Gospels. Picking it up again at verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He says, Rabbi, we know. Apparently, there were some in the ruling body like him that had observed Jesus' ministry up to this point and believed it had some validity to it. We don't know if he took it upon himself to have this conversation or if it was agreed upon that he had this conversation with Jesus by some of the members of the Sanhedrin. How does Jesus respond to him? Jesus takes the conversation to the heart of the matter quickly. What is the heart of the matter? between those two, between Jesus and Nicodemus. It's Nicodemus' standing before God. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, Nicodemus, you say that you believe that I came from God. Let's put that to the test with God's message to you, Nicodemus. You came for teaching, but what you really need is to be born again. If you aren't born again, which could also be interpreted as born from above. If you're not born from again, if you're not born from above, Nicodemus, then you cannot enter God's kingdom. This is significant because what Jesus is doing is he is flipping Nicodemus' theology upside down. I mean, it's like a slap in the face and then the follow-up backhand. 
to say something like this to a man like Nicodemus. But it's the truth. And so Jesus is being honest with him. He's speaking the truth to him in love. Here's the, the, the crazy part of that conversation. Nicodemus would have already believed that he was a member of God's kingdom. Precisely because of his natural birth as a Jew and his obedience to God's law that followed. Jewish people believed they had an automatic spot, so to speak. Reserved seating. Like when you go to the movies and you get the actual seat because you get to recline in it, you know. You walk in there and somebody's sitting in your seat and you're like, dude, E5, it's sorry. Like, this is mine. Right? Like that, that's how they viewed themselves. They had reserved seating. Nicodemus believed that as a Jew, he could only be kept out if he were blasphemous or extremely wicked. But the default from his birth as a child of Abraham, receiving of the covenant promise, right? He believed because, precisely because in large part of his natural birth, that he already had a seat in God's kingdom. So according to him, you were qualified to be in God's kingdom precisely by birth and could only become disqualified by severe disobedience. And as far as a man like him becoming disqualified, well, let's not be absurd, right? He could say, have you seen my morality? Have you seen my credentials? Do you know, bro, how seriously I take God's word? More seriously than the next guy. Have you seen all of my good choices? I mean, somebody pat me on the head and give me a cookie, right? That's, that's Nicodemus. And Jesus took a sledgehammer to the glass floor that Nicodemus had spent his entire life standing on. I mean, just right at the base. Born again? Second birth? Born from above? Would you have lots of questions if you were Nicodemus? Probably so. And yet he doesn't appear to be offended. He's engaged in the conversation. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? How can a man be born again, Jesus? I was born once. I was born a child of Abraham, a receiver of God's covenant blessing. I've been born once, Jesus. There is no earthly way for a person to be born twice. It's not logical. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, your natural birth, all of the relentless work towards obedience won't bring you to my kingdom. Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you will never be able to become more than what you were born to be, a child of Adam, a child of sin. That is your birthright, unless you are born again born of water and the Spirit of God. Now, there has been some speculation about what Jesus means by saying born of water and the Spirit. We don't have time to go into them. I opt for the interpretation that keeps in step with what I believe is a thoroughly Jewish and Old Testament context that these Jewish men and teachers of God's truth were having. Jesus and Nicodemus are speaking about the kingdom of God, but as it rightly should be understood, from within an Old Testament context. Later on in the conversation, Jesus even corrects Nicodemus and says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? So what was Jesus saying when he said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God? Well, he was referencing passages like the prophet Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. A lot of the verses from the second song that we sang 
come from this scripture, I, I would argue, just by hearing it. But Ezekiel in, in Ezekiel 30, chapter 36, 25 through 27, you can turn there if you wish, but I'll read it real quick. I've got it here. The prophet Ezekiel is speaking about God's new covenant that he would bring to his people. I'm going to read this to you real quick. Think about this as you think about Jesus' statement of, unless you're born of water and the Spirit. Ezekiel says, from the Lord's perspective, speaking as his prophet, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Now, after an entire Old Testament of failures amongst God's people, what does God say to them through Ezekiel as he points to a new covenant that he will make with his people? He brings to them five I wills, five things that he says, I will do this. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone, your dead heart. He says, I will place my spirit within you. Unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 6, just to make sure that he's got it, Jesus says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That word of there, it basically means of or from or originates. He's saying that which originates from the flesh is and will always be flesh. That which originates from the Spirit is and will always be spirit. He says, Nicodemus, your identity is still wrong. You might be a descendant of King David. You might be a descendant of Jacob, of Isaac, of Abraham. You're still a descendant of Adam. You're born into rebellion against God. You're born a slave to sin, as we all are still today in our natural state. You can strive all you want to become something more, but it's impossible, Nicodemus. You are born into sin, and the penalty of sin is death. Do not marvel to you, verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus could hear the sound of the wind as it swept past them. He knew it was there. He knew it was real. He saw the effect of it. Yet he didn't know where it came from or where it went. So was everyone, Jesus said, who was born of the Spirit. You hear the voice of the Spirit, you see the effects of the Spirit in someone's life. But the Holy Spirit himself, the agent of new birth, you don't see. But you know he's there because you see what he does. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus had taught him the what. Now Nicodemus said, how? How can these things be? Think about this. What role did you play in your natural birth. What did, you, what did you have to do with that? Pretty much, I would argue that all of us just showed up, begged for food, laid around for a while, peed and pooped, and then we went to sleep, and we just kind of hoped it all kept working out. Right? Nicodemus said, if I must be born again, how do I do that? It didn't make sense to him. I was born once. What does this new birth look like? 
Verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus clearly believed that because Nicodemus had such a commanding view of Old Testament Scripture, he should be able to follow this conversation. They should be able to move on to greater things even. Verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Who's the we now, right? Before, in the beginning, Nicodemus said, we know, right, that you're a teacher come from God because of these things you do. Now Jesus said, we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Who's the we? I believe he's talking about John the Baptist. He's talking about his testimony. He's talking about his disciples. What did Jesus begin saying when he launched his ministry? He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Why was the kingdom of God at hand? Because the king was at hand. He was bringing the kingdom with him. He spoke the truth of the kingdom of God to the people of the need for new life of regeneration. His disciples echoed that message. And what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus come to him down at the River Jordan? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus said, you have been offered a testimony. You have refused to receive it. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus wasn't tracking with what he did know and what he did had been exposed to both through the Old Testament scriptures and through the Jesus and, and through his disciples, he wasn't following. Jesus wanted to be able to talk to him about greater things, about deeper things. He wanted to talk to him about like, things like becoming a slave to righteousness, about being one with him, about his church, his people called out together, reaching across every nation, tribe, tongue, and language in the entire world. But they couldn't get past this first conversation. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, my authority comes from the fact that I came from heaven. Nicodemus, you're not just addressing a teacher, you're addressing a man who is also God, the Son of Man, your Messiah, your Savior. Then in verse 14, he directly answers Nicodemus' question. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, that whoever believes in him may enter God's kingdom and be with him. Jesus references what at first glance is an obscure passage from the book of Numbers, but we're familiar with it, right? About that passage, Jews traditionally believed that it was the upward look to God that healed the Israelites of the serpent's bite, right? They said, take the serpent, put it on a pole, and as you looked up at it, you were, you were brought, you were raising your countenance up to God, and that was what saved them. They missed out on the imagery, as Paul would call it. They missed out on the, on the true nature of the type. That's likely what came to Nicodemus' mind in that conversation. But here, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that there is more to the type or the image that history gives us. The judgment of the people's sin in the brazen serpent was meant to prepare the hearts and the minds of those who followed, them and us, for the sacrifice of the Son of God for the sins of the world. 
So that those that look up, yes, but to what? Look up to him in faith will live. Nicodemus, he's saying, this, the son of man who descended from heaven is standing right here before you. You only need to look upon me and believe. And then the Holy Spirit of God will baptize you with fire. He will cleanse your soul. You and I will become one. You will become the temple of God. And John leaves the conversation there. It does not appear at that time that Nicodemus chose to follow Christ that night. It just seems to not click for him. He didn't put it all together. And Jesus was demanding far too much of him. But Jesus lived and ministered in extraordinary ways for three years. But the final and most important lesson to Nicodemus and to us was still to come. In his final lesson on this earth, until he was resurrected, to Nicodemus and to us, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I believe that Nicodemus did ultimately choose to follow Christ. One of the reasons for that is because John chapter 19 alludes to that when he talks about how Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea personally took Jesus' body from the cross and then personally prepared his body for burial, both of them being men of influence and means who had servants, but they did it themselves. I think it was likely that final lesson that did it for Nicodemus. This is pure conjecture on my point, on my part, but I believe it was likely that final lesson that did it for Nicodemus, the lesson of looking up and seeing Jesus on the cross. Thinking back on this conversation, the curse of sin, the look of faith, the entrance to the kingdom coming by the sacrifice of the Messiah for sin. I can almost see the different Old Testament scriptural truths and prophecies come together in his highly educated mind when he saw Christ lifted up, suffering for the people, an innocent man. Bearing the sins of the world, satisfying the wrath of God. How profoundly I believe it would have affected him. Because the Old Testament speaks extensively about Christ, about his life and about his death. Hundreds of years and more before he was even born. R. Kent Hughes says this, he says, Jesus has set down for all subsequent generations that the radical change, the new birth, is possible only when he takes our infected natures upon himself, bears the venom, and imparts a new nature to us. If salvation requires a new birth for a man like Nicodemus, then there's hope for all of us. John leveled the playing field when he brought Nicodemus into this conversation. He leveled the playing field. He, may, he helped us to realize that no matter who we think we are, no matter where we come from, no matter how bad it is, no matter how bad it's gotten, salvation is there. We need only to look up. We need only to look to Christ in faith. And he imparts righteousness to us. 
We discard our identity of being a slave to sin, and we take on a new identity of being a slave to righteousness, becoming obedient from the heart, from a changed heart, from a new heart, living a new life given to us by the Spirit of God. And this is John's, I I would argue, this is John's simple message for us, right? The gospel. And I look out amongst a church body, and I think about it in my own heart, and I think, how excited am I about the gospel? How much does it affect me whenever I hear it? How much do I think about it? How much do I share it? Am I bold? Am I scared? But the Spirit works in us. He calls us to obedience. He empowers us to love. And John is going to bring in that tremendously motivating factor of why in the verses to come. He taught us the what. Christ taught us the what. He taught us the how. What's the why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. We take it for granted. We lose the beauty of it. But I would encourage us today as a church body, as God's people called out together, take some time to meditate on the gospel. Take some time to meditate on what it means. Take some time to meditate on the sacrifice that Christ gave for us. Take about what it, think about what it meant for him to take on the wrath of God on your behalf and on mine. And then think about all the people that we know and love that are stuck where Nicodemus was. I don't get it. I don't understand. It seems like foolishness to me. I don't believe. I don't want to believe. Think about all those people who are living according to their natural birth identity. And therefore, they're not a part of God's kingdom. And have a time of reflection, have a time of prayer, have a time of response, all of us, for those people. And if you're here today and you are one of those people, you're in the right place. You're not here by accident. Christ welcomes you into his kingdom. It's a simple act of faith. It doesn't matter how many times you've been bitten or how bad you've been bitten or how sick you are. Jesus just leveled the playing field for us in this conversation that John gave us out of chapter 3. Let's move into a time of response. I'm going to pray, and then we'll worship together. Let's just take a moment to be serious about the gospel. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son. We thank you that you love us enough to send your son We thank you that that Christ loves us enough to suffer for us physically and spiritually as he takes on your wrath, something only he could do after living a perfect life, a blameless man, to take our sin upon him, our curse upon him, and then impart his life to us. And it's the truth. It's the truth and we know it. May we respond accordingly. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.